If I might have your attention, let me say Happy Easter to you. Uh, we're glad that you're here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, especially if you're a family member or perhaps you're visiting Redeemer for the first time. We're, we're really glad that you are here. And um, this morning, our passage of reflection comes to us from Acts chapter 10. You find it there in verses 34 to 43 in your Bibles. Here we have one of Peter's sermons recorded for us in the book of Acts in which he reminds us not only is the resurrection true, but it's truly transformative. Yet God didn't just intend for this thing to happen, but to keep on happening in, in such a way that it would undo the curse of sin um, th throughout all of space and history. That's the hope of the resurrection, that God in Christ is making all things new. Let's give our attention to God's Word. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to be judge of the living, uh, to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. That is that word born of the living word, Jesus the Christ, who became one of us and even as one of us suffered a cruel and terrible death for our salvation, we pray that you, Lord Jesus, would reign in our hearts at this day by my voice and, and in the depth of our beings, that we would believe and trust in you, that we would seek first your kingdom above all else, that you, O oh God, would reign as the resurrected life in Christ. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Having our two oldest home, as uh, my wife and I have gotten older and kids have left, getting them back is always special, and it makes me think of those stories uh, from, uh, from the past. And one of those stories is about Anna Catherine, my oldest. This must have happened when she was about eight years old. She hit the jackpot at HEB. Now, when you're eight, hitting the jackpot at HEB meant that you had taken your HEB buddy bucks, and you had uh, sauntered over to the the, the carousel of prizes and, and manipulated that crane to get that 50-point sticker. And that's exactly what she did. She, she got that 50-point sticker, and then she took it over to the clerk to get that jackpot prize. And I, I learned at that point that getting a jackpot prize at HEB is not an everyday occurrence. 
that the clerks standing around were quite taken by her achievement. And one of them came over to offer her um, congratulations, and her words are worth some reflection. That she said this to my little girl, you got that because you were good. If you keep on being good, then more good things will come to you. Her words offer a perspective that is shared by many, not just here, but all throughout the world. The better we are, the more righteous we are, the better our lives will be. The inverse is also true. If you are bad, then your life will be a failure. Right? The quality of our life is determined by the quality of our conduct. How good of a person are you? Now, now trying to figure out how to have a better life is not unique to this store clerk at HEB. It's not unique, in fact, to any of us, all people throughout all of the world, no matter their race or tribe, nation, culture, place in history, status in society. Everybody's trying to solve the riddle of this broken life. Everybody wants a better life. Everybody looks at the world and sees something. Something is terribly wrong. The question is, what's the answer? How do we undo this brokenness that that has afflicted each person? It would be dishonest as Christians for us to say we didn't care about that common plight. We do. In fact, we have our own answers to what ails this broken world and how we can have hope in this brokenness. It would also be dishonest if we were to say that this streetwise wisdom distilled by that store clerk at HEB were the truth. Right? That, That good things come to good people. If you want more good things then be better. Many of us struggle to believe that, but it's not true. If we needed any clear proof or evidence, we don't have to look at our own lives. We have only to look at the most significant person at the center of the story of the Christian faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. But right, the Scriptures attest The whole world attests, you you attest, that this Jesus was a good man. Verse 38, Peter tells us that he went about doing good, right? He was healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Here was a good man from his earliest days. He was a faithful church attender attending the synagogue, Mastering the scriptures. He spent his entire adult life doing good. Had the capacity to do great miracles. Visiting the sick. Dignifying the lives of those at the margin of society. Here we meet a man unlike any other in his goodness. In fact, I've yet to hear someone say he was a bad man. You don't want to be like Jesus. If you think that, come talk with me. I'd love to talk with you. Because the truth is we all believe in the goodness of Christ. 
And so certainly he, he would have stood the test. But, but what happened to Jesus? Right? Well, you also know the answer to that question. Peter reminds us in verse 39, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. In an earlier sermon in Acts chapter 2, Peter announces, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up. By God's definite plan and foreknowledge, but you crucified him. Along with the hands of lawless men, you killed him. That not surprisingly, Jesus cares about this same question, where is life? Where can I find it? Where can it be found? Jesus said of himself, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's why Jesus could, could never believe, as that store clerk declared, that life, getting it, is about the practice of our goodness. Because here is the ultimate good guy getting the worst that this world has to offer. A cruel death, an unjust death. The death of a betrayal. You know, it's at this point, when you get to this point in the Christian story, you, you have to scratch your head and recognize that, that something is going on here that can't be reduced to pious moralism. We, we can't just turn Christianity into this idea, you know, try to be a better person. That's what it's really about, like all the other religions in the world. That, that, that's why we're all here. It's not that way. And in fact, that difference is at the heart. It's the very cornerstone of the Christian faith. Christianity is, in fact, about being reconciled to a God. Life is found in that reconciliation. We are brought back to the one who has made us. But the pathway is not our goodness, not our strength, not our success, but His strength, His success, His goodness. And that's why the resurrection is so important. Because the resurrection validates His path. The resurrection, in fact, validates that His path is the only path to life in this world. Which means that His resurrection is for all of the world. That's why we say that the resurrection is the fulcrum of Christianity. If it happened, everything's changed. If it didn't happen then all of this, at best, is a, is a well-intentioned waste of time, but, but nonetheless a waste of time. But if it did happen, the news of the resurrection is the most transformative event in all of history. The event of the resurrection is the most significant thing that has ever occurred and is rippling throughout all of history, throughout all of space and time. But why should we believe it's true? As I do every Easter, I remind us of a few things that I think make the case of the resurrection compelling. And the first one is simple. As it is with any historical event, there were witnesses to the resurrection that testified to its veracity. It was true because they saw Him. Peter saw Him. As he tells us right here, we ate and drank with Him, as did all the other apostles. Paul the apostle tells us, 
In his letter to the church at Corinth, that over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus on occasion. And if he had not been resurrected from the, from the dead, then any of those could have debunked the story of the resurrection if it were false. They saw the resurrected Christ. Secondly, if the resurrection were a fabrication, then why didn't the officials produce the body? I mean, Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Then just bring out the body. But there was no body. That They had no body. But you say the reason why is because the disciples had... Um, taken the body. They had robbed the grave to propagate an elaborate hoax. But if the resurrection was in the plan of the disciples, if they were scheming an elaborate hoax to propagate the story of Jesus Christ, then why go to all the details of dealing with His death? Why all of the finality and sorrow when He died? But for example, why would Joseph Arimathea, this respected member of the Jerusalem council, why would he risk his reputation? Why would he give his own grave tomb at great expense so that Jesus might be buried there? Why go to all of those details if he was participating in a hoax? And more importantly, what about the women? All of the Gospels attest that the women were the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And given that their testimony would have never been allowed in a court of law in that time, but why would the disciples make their voice the most critical voice in the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ? That, that all of the gospel accounts testify to women being the first witnesses, it means it must have happened that way. To their surprise. To everyone's surprise. And that there were eyewitnesses. And that there was no body. Those together joined and make the case all the more compelling. After all, one without the other, we could have maybe dismissed it. For example, if there were witnesses, but the body was still in the grave, everyone would say, Well, you're crazy. There's Jesus, he's dead. There was no body, but no witnesses. Well, we have a cold case. We, we know what we do there. We don't say, oh, that means resurrection. No, no one would have thought resurrection. But there was no body in the grave because there were witnesses to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. All of that testifies to the truthfulness of the bodily resurrection. This isn't about warm, sentimental feelings. This isn't about pious reflections, about something that, that continues to make us feel good in the absence of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, this is an historical event. The Scriptures testify to its truthfulness. But it's not just a thing that happened. Right? Affirming the resurrection is true, is important, but it's not just about if this happened. It's about why it mattered. Why this thing really matters and why it continues to matter to our lives today. And the Apostle Peter is going to help us work through two of those significant implications of the resurrection in these verses. And the first one is this, that in the resurrection we see 
to, um, the, the, the gracious embrace of our God for sinners. Th- this validates it. That our God really came for sinners. He really loves people like you and me. Peter's speaking about it here in verses 42 and 43, that Peter said that um, he's commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness. Everyone who believes in him, what? Receives forgiveness of our sins through his name. The core of the Christian story, the core of the Jewish story, I should say, is the story of redemption, right? God had come to His people as they were enslaved in the land of Egypt, burdened and broken, and He led them out, breaking their chains, sustaining them in the wilderness, bringing them into the land of Canaan, there sustaining them throughout history, but also reminding them that there was a great price of that sustaining presence which was occurring in the temple, right? The sacrifices that were offered on behalf of the sins of the people and even the priests who offered them, and yet that they were continually offered over and over and over again, bore witness to the fact that those sacrifices were inadequate to the task. And so they looked ahead to a better sacrifice, a more perfect expression of the covenant of grace, and that, that expression came came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who would keep the new covenant of grace. And he did so by becoming that perfect sacrifice. Because as we talked about on Friday night, he was perfect in every every way, and yet also tempted in every way. And so he became the perfect sacrifice for his people as a beautiful expression of God's love and his grace. And that God raised him up after that sacrifice validated that not only was his death tragic and cruel, it was also a beautiful atonement, a satisfaction of divine justice. This place where God's holiness and His mercy kiss and are extended to all of who would put their faith and trust in Him. And that's why the resurrection means that we can be forgiven. As Paul says, He was raised up for our justification. He was raised up for our freedom in Christ. That our sins might be finally put away. Now, if you know the guilt of your sin... If you have that twinge of conscience, and by virtue of, of God's uh, image being imprinted upon your heart, you know that you are accountable to the God of all of heaven and earth, then the offer of forgiveness and mercy is a great encouragement to you. It's immediately relevant to you. But, but some of us have been hardened in our hearts. We no longer feel that burden. And you say... Why do I need God to forgive me my sins? What God? What sins? What forgiveness? Let me ask you another question. Why do you want those who have wronged you to say they're sorry? But why do you want them to own their responsibility for how they have wronged you? Why do you want them 
to forgive you when you have wronged them. Friends, it's because we not only live in a law governed by physical laws, but we live in a moral universe. And the laws that we apply, even intuitively and unconsciously, imperceptibly to the relationships that govern um, our discourse, are reflective of that morality that governs this world, ultimately reflecting the verticality of our relationship with God. As those who bear His image, we bear the stamp of not just what is right and wrong, but what we owe Him and how we have broken that oath, born even at creation into our hearts. We need forgiveness, even if we don't confess that we do. And because Jesus Christ was raised up from the grave... He has offered it to you. Only in Jesus Christ, only because of His resurrection, can that relationship be repaired and our sins be forgiven. The truth is, if we stop long enough to consider our lives, if we can quiet our hearts long enough, then then we ought to be able to confess that no matter how good we outwardly appear, no matter what people say about us, we know that we are complete moral failures. Who of us has loved purely? On our best day. Who of us has acted righteously? On our best day. We are at best compromised at every point. And our God knows it. But not only does He know it, He loves us in the midst of that brokenness. That's why He came, and that's why He died, and that's why He was raised up, that He might forgive us our sins. With the resurrection, we are assured that God has ultimately, finally undone the curse that beset each human person, and that in Him we can have a new beginning, our sins being put away. He became sin, Paul says. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In Him we have the forgiveness of our sins. But we did see in this passage not only the deep embrace, the gracious embrace of our God for sinners, we also see His white embrace. Jesus didn't just come for sinful Jews. He came for all of the sinners of this world. This was perhaps the most surprising implication of the resurrection for Peter, that the gospel was not only the hope for the Jewish people, but for all of the Gentiles. Look what he says there in verse 34. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but that we've been sent to preach good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. That The resurrection makes this universal claim. It says that what has happened in Christ, in the tomb and out from the grave, is news for all of the peoples of the world. Now, now let's not misunderstand. The point is not that God accepts us no matter what. It's not as though our lives are okay. No, our lives are okay only in and through Jesus Christ. The invitation is that God invites us no matter what. No matter the backstory of your life. 
no matter your race, tribe, no, no matter your socioeconomic status, education, no matter your religion, gender, sin, struggle, no matter the, the temptations, no, no matter all of the family brokenness, no matter all of the details of the sordid tale that is your life, no matter all of that, you are invited. You are invited into the story of hope that is the one found in Jesus Christ. In the gospel, every person is invited to true life change in Christ. This isn't just a narrow embrace. But God's arms open wide to encompass all of the people of this world. And perhaps we, we like Peter, need a Peter moment where we, where we recall that God's embrace is often bigger than the one that I want to extend to those around me. That God's family includes those that we are likely to see as unclean. That those that, that we are likely to say, you know, you don't count, you don't belong, you don't look like us. And along with Peter, we can repent and preach the good news of peace to all. Because Jesus was raised up for every nation. This is the good news. Indeed, this is the Easter story. This is the Easter story. Which brings me back to the story of my daughter that day at HEB so many year, years ago. You know, there's a lot of misinformation that's out there in the name of Christianity. I have to admit that a lot of it's perpetrated by believers. We, we get our own story wrong, right? We, like the rest of the world, struggle to think that if, if I do the right things, if I get my act together, if I succeed, then life's going to go well. That's how it's supposed to work. If we apply the world's ways to life's problems, then we will find success. History is replete, in fact, with Christians who've fallen into that trap, massing power, politics, influence, money, resources, prestige, armies even. And yet they've always ended badly. Right, because we cannot usher in the kingdom in the world's way. Making it all the harder today in our culture is the fact that if any of us assert the truth of the story of Christianity, we're, we're going to be looked upon with suspicion by those in this world. How dare you be so arrogant to say that we should believe this or that or this or that is true. That is the answer. Any religion, in fact, any religious claim can't help but fall into that same trap. The illusion, of course, is that modern secular ideology can somehow avoid that problem. That just because someone doesn't claim a blatantly religious answer it doesn't mean that their claims require less faith. Every time we say this is the answer, that claim is rooted in a story that requires our faith. The, the question is, what, why should we believe any story? That whether it's the secular 
ideology of the irreligious or it's the religious or the particular story of the Christian faith. What I want us to see this morning is only Christianity offers us a genuinely different approach to the problem of this world, one that I don't think we think about enough. Because to change the world, what did Jesus do? He went the other way. He he didn't choose the world's way. Amass power, amass an army, take a nation. He gave up the world's way. He did this because he knew that the world's way was ultimately a dead end and needed to be judged. What does the world, what does God think of all of the world's power struggles? The big ones and, and the, the, the very particular ones, even in your own family. What does God say about all this? What does God think? He has told us in the cross. It's a dead end. It needs to be judged. It needs to be crucified. The cross is God's assessment of this broken world. And if that were the only part of the story, it would be truly depressing. Right? But it's not. It's not the only part of the story. In fact, the most important part of the story is Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the grave. And He offers us a new beginning. The cross says that life without God is a dead end. The resurrection says that life with with God is a new beginning. Life with God is a new hope. Life with God is the world being remade. It's a truth claim. But it's also the truth. Jesus rose from the grave that He might give life to this broken world, to give life to each one of us. And He didn't do it the way the world does it, demanding our allegiance. He gave up His life, setting aside His rights and prerogatives that He might save us and bring us life. And it's for this reason that He calls us to bend our knees. And give our lives unto Him. Christian Christ is risen. Hallelujah. He is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your beloved Son, this One who came and died and rose again from the grave. We ask, Lord Jesus, that You would reign over us and in us through Your life-giving Spirit, that we would have our faith rekindled that you would increase our hope, deepen our love for you and for one another, that we might be in this world your living witnesses of the hope of the resurrection. Do that, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.